Let's take our Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. Gold is one of the most valuable materials on earth. For centuries, gold has been used as money, but it also has many uses in industry, manufacturing, and even in spaceflight. One of the traits that makes gold so useful is that it can be shaped and formed very easily. In fact, one single ounce of gold, one single ounce of gold, can be flattened out to cover 300 square feet. Think about that. One ounce of gold can be flattened out to cover 300 square feet. But you know, when gold is dug out of the ground, when they dig that gold ore out, it contains many other elements that have to be removed from it prior to it being useful. And they call it the process of refining. The refining process for gold involves very intense heat. In fact, gold melts at a temperature of almost 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And that incredibly high temperature is required for gold to be refined. In other words, it has to be fired at a temperature of 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit to remove any other impurities from it so that it is now pure. And it can be used for money or in industry, manufacturing, spaceflight, etc. The Christian life involves a very similar process of refinement. Sometimes we're surprised when the quote-unquote bad things happen to good people. But the scripture tells us that fiery trials or times of suffering are part of God's refining process or program for our lives. And this morning I want to go through 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 7 through 9 and I want to look at God's strategy for suffering. God's strategy for suffering. When we as believers suffer, God is using it in our lives to refine us so that he can then form us and shape us into what he wants us to be. Our response, though, to suffering often involves griping and complaining. Rather, suffering should be a time of rejoicing. Now, that's not to say that we have some false impression or that we have some strange ideas about what suffering is, but the reality is that while suffering is difficult... And while suffering is going to happen, we as Christians should rejoice because God has a strategy for that suffering in our life. God is not just bringing that or allowing that suffering into our life because he has nothing better to do. God's not allowing the suffering into our life because he's going to be entertained by our reactions or lack of reactions or our sufferings or whatever's. 
That's not why God allows suffering to bring suffering. God brings suffering into our life because he has a strategy, and that strategy is a process or program of refining us in the fire so that not only do we come out purified, but we come out ready to be molded and formed or shaped into what he wants us to be. It is impossible for us as humans to avoid calamity. If anybody thinks that they're going to go through life without calamity, they have fooled themselves. No one is going to go through life without some kind of physical injury. It's a fact of life. And everybody, every human being is going to go through some type of interpersonal conflict. And so whether it's natural calamity, whether it's physical injury, whether it's interpersonal conflict, God uses these afflictions or these sufferings to instruct and discipline us. And when these calamities occur, when these times of suffering occur, whether to a mass group or whether to an individual, whether to a nation as a whole or just a portion of a nation, many questions arise. What went wrong? Where did this suffering come from? Who's to blame for this suffering? Who brought this suffering to our shores? But here's some questions maybe you haven't thought about. How does God fit into this suffering? Why would God bring or allow such terrible things to happen to the people whom God has chosen for his own? And that's the question we need to be asking ourselves. And this certainly isn't the first and only time we're going to ask that question. We'll probably ask that question several times in the next several months. But I think today, as we initially begin to think through the process of why does God bring this suffering into our lives, it's because He has a strategy, and that strategy is to purify us. That strategy is to bring us to a place where he can mold and shape us. And I want to look at three thoughts this morning, three of the strategies that God uses from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. The first strategy that God uses for suffering is strategy number one, if you will, is that he uses suffering to humble us. He uses suffering to humble us. Verse 7 says, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there has been given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Paul said he was given a thorn in the flesh. Now, he does not definitively tell us here in this text what that thorn is. Uh, based on Galatians 4, 14 to 15, we believe that it was some kind of eye ailment. Whether or not that is the case, we don't know. But what is clear is that whatever this thorn was, it was afflicting his flesh. It's a thorn in his 
flesh, that is, his physical body. Paul was experiencing suffering in his human body. And by the way, the word thorn, as it's translated, the Greek word refers to a stake. This is not some little prick in the finger. This was something sharp, stuck painfully deep into his flesh, which could not be easily pulled out, but continued to cause exasperating pain and discomfort. In fact, the word in the original that is translated here, thorn or stake, was used to describe the object that you would impale someone upon so that you could torture them. This would be a sharp wooden staff. So this is not a thorn or a splinter. This is not some little difficulty. This isn't a little hangnail. This is something that has major consequences, major effects on Paul's life. Now before we say more about the thorn, let's understand the reason for, the, for why Paul received this thorn. He says, back in verse 7, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, based on the context, we're not going to take the time to go through the whole context this morning, but Paul received this thorn after being raptured into the third heaven and receiving divine revelation from God. Paul received this suffering in his life, this physical suffering, in response to the blessings that he had enjoyed. Think about that. Here's the Apostle Paul out there serving the Lord, going wherever God would send him, doing God's work throughout the world, gets taken up to the third heaven, is given revelation directly by God himself, is sent back to planet earth, and in response to the blessing of rapture and revelation, God brings a stake of suffering into his life. For what purpose? To humble him. And I'll tell you, friends, there is no better humiliator than suffering. The stake of suffering reminded Paul of his need to depend on God. I mean, again, think about this. He just received this great blessing. And yet, even though he received this blessing, Paul in his flesh could have taken that blessing and and become prideful. He could have become arrogant. He could have been self-sufficient. And so God, before Paul could do any of those things, before he could become prideful, arrogant, or self-sufficient, God used suffering to humble him. And if we think about it from that perspective, that God brought suffering into his life to keep him humble then we have to see that the suffering is not a curse, but a blessing. 
and the quote-unquote suffering that we're experiencing right now, which to be honest, pales in comparison to the sufferings that Christians around the world face, really for, for if, we can, if we were to compare, you know, the suffering that we're dealing with is really a little prick in the finger compared to what some Christians around the world go through. But for the many in the Western world, for many Christians who have enjoyed the peace and comfort and tranquility of Western living, the fact that their normal has been upended has brought them much suffering. Emotional suffering. Mental suffering. And yes, because of this virus and disease, it's now taking a financial hit. People are now beginning to suffer financially. Loss of jobs. Destruction of family. Many families are being torn apart because they are so cooped up and there's so many pressures that are upon them that we're actually looking at a growing divorce rate because of this suffering. But yet as Christians and as believers, and again, this isn't to minimize what you may be dealing with financially or emotionally or mentally, we have to come to grips with the fact of looking at suffering from God's point of view, that God is using this as a source of blessing in our life to first and foremost humble us. 1 Peter 5, verse 6, Peter gave some advice there. He said, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Micah 6, 8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, my friends, we don't have the right to question God or debate God's wisdom. We need to accept what He brings into our life and respond in turn, by humbling ourselves, because it's coming from the mighty hand of God. Now, the mighty hand of God that Peter refers to here in 1 Peter 5 and verse 6 is an Old Testament symbol of God's controlling power. The mighty hand of God was oftentimes a source of wrath in the Old Testament. And just as often the mighty hand of God in the Old Testament was a source of blessing. But whether it was a source of blessing or curse, anybody who was the recipient of the mighty hand of God became humble and realized that God was in charge and that God will accomplish His sovereign purpose. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 20, the mighty hand of God delivered Israel from, from Egypt. Other times in the Old Testament, the mighty hand of God was a shield that protected believers through times of testing. Other times, the mighty hand of God was a chastening hand. Let's take a moment and look at that Job. Think about Job. 
a humble man, right? We know that he was a righteous man. We know that he was a just man. We know that he was a holy man. And yet, God brought via Satan tragic circumstances into Job's life. First, he took everything from Job. And then he took Job's health. And Job was going through terrible anguish. He was suffering emotionally, mentally, financially. And he begins resenting what the mighty hand of God had brought upon him. He came to a point where he started forgetting, hey, listen, God's mighty hand had been good upon me, but now God's mighty hand is not being too good upon me. And you can, you can sense the raw human emotion in Job chapter 30, verses 20 to 23, when he says, I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you just look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up. You drive me before the wind. You toss me out in the storm. And I know you're going to bring me down to death. Now, Job didn't have it right. And so many times when we're going through times of suffering, we don't have it right either. Our perspective is skewed. And that was, Job's perspective here was certainly skewed. It wasn't that God wasn't answering him. It wasn't that God was just looking at him. It wasn't that God was being ruthless to him. It wasn't that God was attacking him. It wasn't that God had tossed him out in the storm. But what Job failed to understand at this point was that the mighty hand of God at this point was not a hand of deliverance, but of testing. He was putting Job through the refiner's fire to make his faith come out like gold, to make Job come forth purified, to make Job come forth so that he can continue to mold and shape him into the man he wanted him to be. And contrary to what Job thought, that's exactly what God did. Let's jump ahead to Job 42, verse 3, verse 5 and 6. Job 42, verse 3, verse 5 and verse 6. Job said, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He's saying, God, I'm seeing you like I've never seen you before. I've heard about you, but now I've seen you. Boy, Job was humbled. Job had to learn that his dependency was wholly upon God. He had to learn that his perceptions about life were seriously impaired and limited. And he learned how to trust God implicitly. And maybe God is bringing this suffering into our lives to humble us because we've been dependent on everything else but God. Our perceptions about what God wants have been really warped. And so God's brought a season of suffering, a season of testing, 
His mighty hand is upon us, humbling us. You know, we should never view God's mighty hand as something that's going to grind us into dust. Rather, we need to look at the mighty hand of God as a ground for hope. God has good intentions for us as His children. But He needs to humble us. So what's going on in your life? What are areas in your life that God needs to to humble you? Pride? Arrogance? Self-sufficiency? Maybe it's not one of those things. Maybe it's something else. But maybe there's an area in your life where God is saying, Listen, you know, this area right here, you've not given over to me. You're relying on yourself. You think you've got it. And you don't. So I'm going to take you through some suffering so I can humble you so you can take that area of your life and surrender it to me. And that's something that each and every one of us have to examine. When God brings suffering into our life, strategy number one is to humble us. So where does God, where is God speaking to you today? What area of your life does He need you to surrender to Him and humble yourself? Strategy number two is in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Concerning this, I implored the three, Lord three times that it might leave me. Strategy number one is God uses suffering to humble us. Strategy number two, God uses suffering to draw us near to Him. God uses suffering to draw us near to Him. Again, going back to this thorn in His flesh, it was a hindrance, Paul thought, to His ministry. And... In verse 7, he says, it's a minister of Satan. As far as Paul's concerned, this is a satanic attack, whether or not it was or not. But from Paul's viewpoint, he said, this is hindering my ministry. This is keeping me from doing what God wants me to do. It must be from Satan. And so Paul responded with prayer. And that's our chief weapon, by the way. He prayed, not once, not twice, but on three specific occasions, that God would remove this thorn so that he could be free to preach the good news and build others up in the faith. He was persistent. And even though he didn't receive the response the first time or the second time, he still asked a third time. And I believe that you and I need to follow that example. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that three is a magic number for how many times we should pray. Paul didn't say he only prayed three times. It's just that on three different occasions he had prayed. He could have prayed a hundred other times. The example we need to follow is perseverance in prayer. Perseverance in prayer. And we need to think about this. God's brought suffering into our life to humble us 
but also to make us draw near to Him. Maybe you're thinking, boy, this suffering has affected me because I can't do blank. Now, what's the first thing that pops into your mind when I say, it stops me from doing blank? And if we were honest, I would say the vast majority of us the first thing we thought of when we said, well, this t- period of this season of suffering, I can't do what this, or I can't do what I want to do, and that's blank, reveals our heart's desire, doesn't it? How many of us, when facing this season of suffering, this season when, okay, we're limited in what we can and can't do, How many are actually sitting there going, oh boy, this is keeping me from serving the Lord. This is keeping me from worshiping with one another. This is keeping me from doing this or doing that with the the church. Going to services, going to prayer meeting, going to Sunday school. I would submit that by and large, the majority think, oh, it's going to keep me from going to the game. It's going to keep me from watching my shows. It's going to keep me from going here or going there. I understand those things are important. But are they more important than the things of God? Maybe God has allowed this time of suffering and it, in, in, so that He can draw us near to Him because we've been far from Him. Christians should be praying more now than ever. It'd be nice to think that when things do resume, and they will, that prayer meetings would be packed. But isn't it interesting? The one service in which we we have an opportunity to draw near to God is often the least attended. God has a strategy. And that strategy is to draw us near to Him. So, well, if you won't pray when in the good times, then I'll bring some bad times into your life to make you pray, to make you draw near to me. Paul said, I prayed three times. I implored. Notice he uses that word, implored the Lord three times. This is more than fervency. This is, a such, this is a degree of perseverance in which he's so concerned that he acknowledges that the Lord is the only one who can help. And that doesn't mean that the Lord necessarily relieves the problem. He certainly didn't relieve Paul's problem. Oh, well, you've prayed now three times. Okay, your problem's gone. As we know from verse 9, he didn't remove Paul's thorn in the flesh. He allowed that thorn in the flesh to remain. Sometimes God denies the request so that his people will continue to be drawn near to him. Three times he prayed for healing, he didn't receive it. What he did receive was this. He received something far greater. Because he received grace from God. He received a stronger character. He received an ability to emphasize with others that he didn't have before. I can't explain why in God's sovereign plan he heals some but doesn't heal others. 
I don't know why God spares some and doesn't spare others. But I do know that God always acts in according to His divine purpose. And that our responsibility, our task, is to pray, it's to believe, it's to trust that God is working His sovereign purpose and plan. And Paul is living proof that holy living and courageous faith do not ensure instant physical healing. When we pray, it's not just so we can get an answer so our lives can go back to normal. When we pray, it's we're acknowledging that we're putting our bodies in God's care. We're acknowledging that our spiritual condition is more important than our physical condition. Some of you may be familiar with John Donne, D-O-N-N-E. He was a 17th century poet. He experienced great pain. Went through a lot of suffering in his life. John had married a daughter of a disapproving lord. And because of that, he was fired from his job as the assistant to the Lord Chancellor. His wife was taken from him. He was arrested and locked in a prison. This is where he wrote the line, John done and done undone. Later in his life, he endured a long illness that zapped his strength to the point of death. And in the midst of the illness, Dunn wrote a series of devotions on suffering, which till this very day, now this is the 17th century, we're now in the 21st century, and to this very day, his devotions on suffering rank among the most poignant meditations on the topic. And he considered this, He said that the sickness which kept him in bed forced him to think about his spiritual condition. See that, friends? Suffering gets your attention, doesn't it? It it forces you to look to God when maybe other times you would have just ignored Him. And so you need to ask yourself, has God brought this season of suffering into my life because I need to draw closer to Him? I need to draw near to Him. I need to focus on Him more. I need to pray more. God has a plan and a purpose. And you need to consider what that may be. So strategy number one, God uses sufferings to humble us. Strategy number two, He uses the suffering to draw us near to Him. And strategy number three, Strategy number three. God uses suffering to display His grace and power. He uses sufferings to display His grace and power. Verse 9 and 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distress, 
with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Notice the first part of verse 9. God's grace is all sufficient for our personal needs. Grace covers every area of your life. You are saved by grace. You live by grace. And grace is free, unmerited, undeserved favor of God towards us. I'm saved by grace alone. Here I am, a guilty, condemned sinner, standing in the presence of a holy and righteous God. How? By His amazing grace. Not by my works, not by my good deeds, not by my virtues, but by His free grace I have right standing with God. Ephesians tells us that it's by grace we are saved through faith, not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, why? So that none of us can boast. Do you understand that everything you have in your life, your very life, the breath you breathe, is an act of God's grace? That Jesus, He is the mediator of saving grace to sinful people? The fact that you and I can live this life of faith is an act of grace? He gives me grace for daily living? And Jesus told Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. When I'm weak, God's grace lifts us up. What's that mean? He carries us along. He's sufficient. And that power, that strength, is perfected or made complete in our weakness. God brings suffering into our life. God weakens us. So that we can see His power, His grace working in our lives. His power is being made complete in my weakness. The weaker God's people are, the more conspicuous God's strength is in their life in sustaining and delivering them. See, my friends, where there's weakness, God's power becomes more evident and complete. See, God brings suffering into our life to weaken us so we can see His grace. You see, that grace of Christ is what empowered Paul's ministry despite his failures, despite his inadequacy, despite the suffering that he was going through. It's that grace that strengthens us to bear all temptations, trials, sufferings, and difficulties. And Jesus said, Paul, while I'm not going to take this thorn in your flesh away, I will assure you that I will continue to work through you in your weakness. Man, you can't take that for granted. So Paul stopped praying for the removal of the thorn. And he wholeheartedly accepted Jesus' answer to his prayer. He accepted that Jesus in his divine wisdom knew what was best for him. Jesus brought suffering into his life 
to humble him, to make him draw near to God more, but also to powerfully work through him. Are you letting Christ display his grace in your life? Are you letting his power work through you? But notice, it's not just grace, he says. Not only is his grace sufficient for all of our personal needs, but he gives us that divine power in exchange for our weakness. I come to him in my weakness. I say, Lord, I hand over to you my need for wisdom. And what does he do? He gives me wisdom. Lord, I hand over to you my need for Peace, and what does he do? He gives you peace. Lord, I hand over you my need for blank, and you give me blank. That's why James could say, if anyone lacks wisdom, ask of God. He gives to all men generously and without reproach. Proverbs 3, 5 to 7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll make your paths straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. See, the principle the Apostle Paul learned was to exchange his weakness for God's strength. And that's what God is calling on us to do. He's take this season of suffering, take this season of hardship, take this season of difficulty, and hand over to God your sin and guilt. He grant forgiveness. Hand you over your weaknesses. He'll give you strength. Hand him over your failures. He'll, he'll, give, he'll, he'll, he'll give you experience to grow. Hand over your helplessness. He'll give you hope. Hand over your stress. He'll give you power. Hand over your loneliness. He'll give you his presence. Hand over your rejection. He'll give you belongingness. And then notice what Paul says. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insult, with distress, with persecution, with difficulty for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The more weak and contemptible Paul was in the eyes of the Corinthians, the more they would be compelled to glorify Christ by whom he was strengthened in his spirit and made successful. If Christ, if, if, if Christ has to bring these thorns into our life so that he gets more glory and more honor, so be it. Have you got to that place where you're saying, hey, I'm glad about this? Oh, pastor, that, that's hard. Yeah, it is. But that's the purpose of suffering. That's what this season's for. Not just to humble you. Not just to make you draw near to God. But that he can display his grace and power in your life. So that he can get you to see that in and of yourself you're nothing. But with him you have everything. You know a man one day found a cocoon of the emperor moth. And he took the cocoon home and he watched it every day. And one day, a small opening appeared in the cocoon. And for several hours, the moth was struggling 
and couldn't seem to force its body past a certain point. And this man started to feel bad. Look at the suffering this moth is going through. I need to help this moth out. And so the man took scissors and snipped the remaining bits of the cocoon. And the moth emerged easily. But its body was large, swollen, its wings small and shriveled. This man expected that the few hours the wings would spread out into their natural beauty, but they did not. Instead of developing into a creature free to fly, the moth spent its life dragging around a swollen body and shriveled wings. You see, the purpose of that constricting cocoon and the suffering necessary to pass through the tiny opening is God's means of forcing the fluid from the body into the wings. And so what this man interpreted as immersive snip was in reality cruel. That moth needed to go through a season of suffering. And that's exactly what we need. Paul says, I use my thorns for God's glory. Are you using this season in your life to God's glory? What are you doing with your circumstances? Are you letting God speak through them? Are you letting God use these circumstances to conform you to His image and His likeness? You know, when Paul was chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day in the harshest circumstance, he said, Rejoice, and again I say, Rejoice. Because for me to live is Christ and to die, well, that's better yet, Paul said. Man, how do you put such a life into practice? How do we make it work? Now look at verse 10. I'm well content with weakness, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. See, it's only the life of Christ. It's not your efforts displayed before man that impress God. It's only what Christ does in you and through you that merits God's approval. That's why he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. From the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit took up residence in your life. You were given a special relationship. You're in Christ. And Paul prayed, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That needs to be our prayer. No matter what we ask, no matter what we pray, no matter what we think, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can think and ask. And yes, even in this time of suffering, God wants to do exceeding abundant things in your life, but He has to first humble us. He has to secondly draw us near to Him. And third, He's got to display His grace and power in our lives. Are these thorns displaying the strength of Christ in us. What are you doing with your sorrow? What are you doing with your suffering? What are you doing with your circumstances? What are you doing with your pain? Don't waste them. And understand there comes a point where we've just got to stop praying for the removal of the thorn and start praying, God, teach me through the thorn. 
And my friends, when we get that right attitude, when we humble ourselves and draw near to God, those thorns will not destroy us, but rather cause us to depend on Him. And we will grow. And then we'll begin to live above the chances, the changes, and the circumstances of this life. God accomplished His eternal purpose in Paul's thorn. And he'll do the same thing in us by humbling us, by drawing us near to him, and by displaying his grace and power. So when the pressures of life are applied, what comes out? You know, this morning before I brushed my teeth, I picked up the tube of toothpaste. I squeezed the tube of toothpaste and out came what? Toothpaste. Only what's in there is what comes out. So what is coming out of you when you're being squeezed? Is there a sweet-smelling aroma? Are the pressures of life making you more like Christ? James said, my friends, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let the endurance have its complete result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let me close with just one verse, 1 Peter 5 and verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, Lord, we again thank you for our time together this morning, our time to look at this text, our time to dig into it. And Father, to know that you have a strategy for suffering is comforting. It's comforting to know that you have a plan and a purpose in all of this. And while there may be many finer points to it, at least on the surface, we know that you're using this to humble us. You're using this to draw us near to you. You're using this to display your grace and power in our life. And I pray for each of us, Father. If there's an area of our life that we haven't given over to you, if there's something, some besetting sin, there's some struggle, there's some area of weakness, that, Father, you'd make that evident in us, Lord, that we might hand it over to you and humble ourselves. Father, I pray if there's if, if, if there's a lack of prayer in our life, if there's a lack of prayer in our ministry, if there's a lack of, of, of drawing near to you in the lives of the individuals, then Lord, I pray that you would work in us through this, that you'd make us a people of prayer, men and women of prayer, young people of prayer, casting all our cares upon you because you care for us. And Father God, I ask and pray. That, Lord, when we see the, our own weakness, that then we'll see your power. Lord, when we see our areas where we're limited, we'll see your unlimited power. And in so doing, Father, give you praise, give you glory, give you honor. I thank you for that precious truth of 1 Peter 5, verse 10, that the suffering lasts only a little while. But you will, as the God of all grace, perfect us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us. 
We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.